Well, Becky and I are thrilled to be able to be with you today. And as Andrew said, this isn't the first time we've been in Solano. And we love coming to be a part of the worship time together to connect with you and to be able to see you connect with each other. I have to say this, this the time during the first hour, that kind of visiting time between the services and this hour, I just love sitting, standing and watching you connect with each other. That's a good thing. That's a part of what God's doing together with you. I need to say also uh, just a, a word of, of greeting from our son Brent and his wife Sarah. I had dinner with them on Friday night back in Minnesota where they're serving now. And they said, please say hi to all of our friends at Solano Community Church. This was a very formative place for them during their years. Uh, let me also say on behalf of the EFCA, uh, there's 1,500 churches around the country and about 550 missionaries in 49 countries around the world. Congratulations, Solano Community Church, on 15 years. I mean, last Sunday was a huge celebration. I spoke with James Peterson back in Minneapolis at our offices. James and Jennifer were with you last weekend, and he told me what a great time it was to remember those things that God has done over that 15-year window of time, and congratulations to you for that. Also, I do want to thank you for your partnership with us, with EFCA, and one of the, one of the main ways that you partner with us is you share Pastor Andrew with us. And that is that Andrew leads the church multiplication team for the EFCA. And you're uh, entrusting some of his time and energy to be able to help serve in that way is making a huge difference across the United States as we're seeing church multiplication leaders from 17, the 17 regions around the U.S. getting a heart for how do we truly see what's happened at Solano Community Church multiplied over and over and over again. So thank you for that, Andrew. Thanks for your leadership. You need to know, and I say this even though he's here, he's doing a phenomenal job in leading that, and God is doing some really, really good things. Well, I'm thrilled to be able to be here and open the scriptures for you. Uh, for about uh, 24 years, I had the privilege to serve two churches as senior pastor. I love the Word of God, and it's wonderful to be able to open that. But I want to talk to you a little bit today, first of all, just about life's uncertainties. Life really is, when you consider how quickly things change, significantly filled with transitions and uncertainties. I mean, for some of you, it may be things like job situation, job transition, job uncertainties. Some of you are thinking, wow, what do I do when I finish my degree here and I need to either find a job or I need to go on and do another degree someplace? What do I do with that? Some of you have relationship challenges you're facing. Some of you may say, I have extended family or friends that are living a long ways away and they are struggling right now and it really, it really matters to you and those things that grip your heart. There's a lot of uncertainties in life. Um, Andrew and I had the privilege to, to know and to work together with uh, a guy by the name of Jeff Sorvik. Jeff was our national church planning director for EFCA for a number of years. And about two and a half years ago on a Saturday afternoon, I was in my office down in San Jose and the phone rang about one o'clock and I answered my cell phone and it was a friend Dan. And my friend Dan said, have you heard about Jeff? And then he started crying because Jeff perished that morning in a house fire. I, I was with him the day before in Chicago. Well, we were at a gathering. Andrew was there. Two days, Jeff poured his heart and soul about church multiplication into about a 12 to 15 leaders. A passionate commitment to see churches multiplied and to see leaders raised up across the United States this guy who probably knew and understand more, understood more about multiplication of churches than anyone I know. And Becky and I stood and chatted with him at O'Hare Airport at 5 o'clock 
on Friday evening, and by 1 o'clock California time, he was gone. And I remember hanging the phone up, and all these things are rushing through my mind. What do we do now? I'm concerned about his family. I'm concerned about the church planning leaders that he'd invested in. And I'm concerned about what do we do now with this whole church multiplication thing across our movement? And God's done some incredible things in the face of uncertainty and difficulty to show himself amazingly strong. You know, when I think of people that were struggling and facing uncertainty, that would describe the followers of Jesus. You know, when you, when you consider their, their lives, their experience, they, they left home and family and careers and everything and followed him for about three years. They heard him teach. They watched him perform miracles. They even saw him raise someone from the dead. And just at what seemed like the high point, he's arrested and tried and beaten and crucified. And they place his lifeless body in a tomb. And his followers fled. Not knowing what would happen. Until three days later on a Sunday morning, two women come running back to where these followers of Jesus were, were staying. And they said, we went to the tomb and it's empty and his body is gone. And he appeared to us. And then over a period of about 40 days, the scriptures tell us Jesus appeared to his followers. And he taught them about the kingdom of God. And he explained to them the fact again in, in even clearer ways that he had come from God and he had lived this absolutely perfect life exemplifying the very things we could never do. And that he died on their behalf to pay a price they should have paid so that as they trusted him, they would have the forgiveness of their own wrongs and sins in their lives and the hope of life eternal. And he expressed that to them and talked to them about the future. And then on one particular day, as he was talking to them, he said, now, I want you to stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave because there's a gift the Father's going to send to you. Remember, I told you that John the Baptist came baptizing in water, but that someday you'd be baptized with the Holy Spirit, there'd be this special gift given to you, so wait. And at that point, they looked at him and they said, Lord, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Are you going to do something really great for us now? And, and he said to them, it's really none of your business. What the Father's going to do, he's going to do, but as James Peterson shared with you last Sunday in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but when the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then right there, right when he's talking to them, he begins to levitate up and he goes up into the clouds and, 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 and they're standing staring up into the clouds and I can't help but wonder what chatter was going on among them. Because they'd never seen him do this before, at least not that we know of. I mean, he'd appeared and disappeared in rooms after he was risen from the dead, but, but suddenly now he just goes up and he disappears in the clouds. I can imagine they're standing there looking, going to each other. Never seen him do that before. Do you think he might come back down? And, and two men in white, the scriptures tell us, are standing with them and, and say to them, why are you standing staring up into the sky? This same Jesus who was taken from you, he's going to come again, just like you saw him leave. And so they go, and what do they do? They did what Jesus asked them to do. They waited. And they waited. 
Do you wait well? Can I ask you that? I don't wait well. I don't sit still well. I don't wait well. I want things to happen. They waited. Now, take your Bibles, would you? I hope you have one. I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 2 because that's where we find the story. What I just described to you is from Acts chapter 1 of Jesus speaking with his disciples and his being taken up. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 1, they're waiting. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us, each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia... Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what, what does this mean? Let's stop there for a moment. I'm going to just get, let me give you a little background. This was an incredible feast time in Jerusalem. People had come from all over the then known world to the city. And this event we just read about just unfolded with a city teeming with people from everywhere. And let me give you just a little, a little context from the background. Can I, I want to just talk for a moment about the beginnings the very first book in the Bible, no need to turn there. I'll tell you the story from the book of Genesis. The first book in the Old Testament, the first book in the Bible you're holding in your hand. In Genesis chapter 11, all the people in the world at that point had one language, and they traveled together. It says, as they traveled from the east, they, they came upon a plain, a large plain, and they, and they had some new building technology. If, if they baked bricks and they used bitumen for mortar, they, they could build very solid walls, build good buildings and good, good protection, and even build a tower. And so they said, you know, right here, if we band together, we can build a city to protect ourselves, a tower that could reach to heaven. So we could almost be like God and then we won't have to scatter around the world and we can all stay here. Well, if you go back even to the very beginnings of that same book, as God created humanity, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and be scattered across it. And these people said, no, we're not going to do what God wants us to do. We're going to stay here because we're better together. And we might even, if we band together, be able to give this sense like we control our own destiny. And it's like God looks down from heaven and he says, I don't think so. And so in, in Genesis chapter 11, at a place called Babel, where they were building this tower, 
the Lord came down and he confused their languages. In other words, he created people groups of multiple languages. And you can imagine they come to work one morning, they're going to work on the wall, they're going to work on the tower, they'll work on buildings, and they come to the job site and they can't speak the same language as the people they're working with. If they can't speak the same language, they can't work well together and they begin to gravitate toward people they could understand. And so Genesis chapter 11 says at that point that God scattered the people around the face of the earth and the very peoples or clans or families of the world are created. Because prior to Genesis 11, there was one homogeneous people. And from that point on, there's multiple languages, multiple clans of people around the world. In a sense, the nations of the world were created. But, but it doesn't stop there because the heart of God for the peoples of the world is huge. And so in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man to himself, a man named Abram. And he says, Abram, I want you to leave your home. Go to a place I'm going to, I'm going to send you and show you because I'm going to bless you. I'll make your name great, and people who bless you, I'll bless. And he said, I just want you to know that all the nations, all the families, all the clans, in a sense, all the peoples of the world will be blessed through you. Now, if you wind history back, you will find that Abram is the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus. That's like God said, through you, I'm going to bless all these people groups, all these clans, families, nations that I just created, I'm going to bless all of them through Jesus. I find it absolutely fascinating that what we just read in Acts chapter 2, the birth of the church, as the Spirit of God comes upon these early followers of Jesus, at the birth of the church, God chooses that people from all over the world would hear the message that by trusting in Jesus and by faith, their own brokenness can be forgiven and their lives can be restored in their own heart language. That's why I say we can't understand it. I thought these folks were all Galileans and they're speaking our language and they're telling us these amazing things about God and about what he's done through Jesus. And they were all amazed. It's God's heart for the peoples, all the peoples of the world. People began to come and gather, a crowd gathered. I mean, they're sitting, seen anything like this before. These Galileans speaking different languages and crowd gathers. And as the crowd gathered, Peter does what every good preacher does. When a good crowd gathers, he started to speak. And so he starts and he says this. Come back with me. Back in your Bibles, Acts chapter 2, verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Addressed this huge crowd. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as some of you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. He said, it's only nine o'clock in the morning. They're not drunk. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes this incredible passage from the Old Testament prophet Joel. And he starts speaking again down in verse 22. He continues his sermon. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, 
This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And that was, what does he do next? He quotes from the Psalms, from the Old Testament, from the writings of David. Then he starts speaking again. If you jump down to verse 29. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David. He both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us. And he speaks about David and ties him in with the resurrection of Jesus in verse 31. And then if you follow in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He says, God did this. And then he quotes from David again in verses 34 and 35. And he ends his little message by saying this in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now, that's incredible because he's speaking to a group of people, many of whom just about 60 days earlier, 50 days earlier, right, had been shouting, crucify Jesus. He said, you did it. But God raised him up. Verse 37, how did they respond? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what happened? Jump down to verse 41 with me. And so those who received his word were baptized. And there was added that day about 3,000 souls. So he speaks a message. And 3,000 people decide to follow Jesus. They realized they needed to give their lives to him, that they could be forgiven because of his work on their behalf. Now they had a problem. You know what the problem was? They had 3,000 brand new Christians, most of whom didn't live in Jerusalem. And how were they going to invest in their lives? It'd be quite a challenge for any local church to have, wouldn't it? All of a sudden you had 3,000 brand new Christians, most of them didn't live in the Bay Area, and what are you going to do? So what did they do? Look down at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came on every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And if you look in the next couple of verses, they even sold the things they had so they could help one another out. And day by day, verse 46 says, they attended the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad hearts praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's incredible. When you consider that Peter and these other early followers of Jesus, they're the same ones who when Jesus was arrested, they fled. They're the same ones that even when they were on that mountain, as Jesus had been describing for days, the very things that, he, that had happened to him and explained about the kingdom, and he was ascending, 
the, one of the other gospel writers says that they believed, but some doubted. I mean, they still were struggling with what's going on, wondering. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit of God comes with such power, and they're changed. Because there's something I, I, that I think just comes off of the pages of Scripture. We long for in our lives. I mean, I long for in churches like Solano Community Church in the U.S. and around the world. I, I long that we would see people's lives changed and see people transformed. New followers of Jesus and their lives would be transformed. Disciples, disciple makers, leaders whose lives would be changed. Local churches that would truly be transformed and, and be different because of what Jesus does in their lives. How does it happen? As I see in this text, there's, there's something that to me is exceedingly important. It starts with us. It starts with God working in us so that we can be transformed and out of that transforming work in our lives, then God can multiply transformation in other people's lives. It happened with the, with the early followers of Christ, these early disciples. When God moved in their hearts and they were beginning to be changed and transformed, he then used them to change others. And part of when I look at I want to see God do something so significant across the U.S. And, and here in this community to see God at work in profound ways. And too often we get frustrated because we look at the outputs and we're saying we're not seeing it happen. Rather than looking at, in a sense, the inputs, what's God doing in me? But how does God change us? If it's about being transformed so God can multiply transformation, how does he change us? I, I love Acts chapter 2 because there's three things, and they're not super complex. They're really pretty straightforward. And there are three things. They don't require a lot of money. They don't require a beautiful building. They don't require, they don't require tremendous programs and assets. There are things that I've seen God do to change people in churches across America, and I've watched it in congregations sitting under mango trees in Africa. Because sometimes I think we get so caught up in, we have to have the right program and the right strategic plan, and we have to make sure we have the right facility, and we have the right, you name it, the right things can keep coming on, right? Things we need. And we think without them, what can we do? No, please understand, I'm not saying any of those things are bad. It's great to have good strategic planning. It's wonderful to have great programs. It's great to have materials. It's great to have a facility to be able to meet in. All those things are good. But honestly, those things, without the three things I'm going to tell you right now, those, it just becomes often noise and dust. Because the three things we see in Acts chapter 2, and you'd see it in Acts chapter 3, you'd see it in Acts chapter 4, you read through the rest of the book, it's there. It's the Spirit of God and the Word of God and the people of God. You see it in Acts 2. The Spirit of God just descends in power upon them and grips their hearts. And Peter takes the Word of God in his message. And through the Spirit of God, working using the Word of God in the context of relationships, redemptive relationships with the people of God, he begins to transform people. Not Peter, but God does. 
God transforms our lives as his spirit takes his word in the context of his people and begins to shape us. And friends, here at a time at Solano Community Church, there's a lot of kind of change and uncertainty. I mean, Andrew has told me. It's like, well, you have to leave this place. No, now you can stay in this place. No, now you have to leave this place. And you're going to El Cerrito, and you're wondering what's happening. And can I tell you, the Spirit of God and the Word of God in the context of the people of God, God transforms folks, whether it's in this location, in El Cerrito, it's in homes, in small groups that you have, it's in relationships that you have together, God can do it because it's him. And I long for that to happen among you, that you would see that because I see it. In fact, if you go through, if you read chapter 3 and chapter 4 in Acts, what you'll find is it happens again. I mean, Peter and John, they're going to the temple on the time of prayer and a, a man who has never walked in his life is there ask for money, they don't have money. Peter, just like Jesus, heals this man. A crowd gathers, he begins to speak again. It's like Acts 2 almost over again. He's got this group of people, he's proclaiming the truth from the scriptures, and the Spirit of God is at work, and they go ahead and arrest them. The religious leaders come and arrest them. And what's fascinating is these same religious leaders, after they interrogate them, they say, Wow. These are bold guys. But they're pretty common. They're pretty ordinary. They're not very educated. In fact, if you read in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, you'll see if you go there, you'll see they said they were courageous or bold. They were uneducated or illiterate. And that they were common. And the word for common, if you dig deep enough in the original text, the Greek word there is the word we get our English word idiot from. They're not real bright is how they looked at them. But they could see they'd been with Jesus. I think, friends, honestly, in our day and age, as the world around us may look at the church, they may look and say, how could you people believe these things? You can't be real bright to believe that. Although I know some super, super, super smart people who are deeply committed to Jesus. But the world may look at that. But you know what people need to see around us in this community and literally around the world? They need to see Christ followers who from the world's perspective may not appear to be real special. But they see the character, the quality, the heart of Jesus lived out among us. That's what these religious leaders saw. That's because these folks were being transformed and out of their lives, God was transforming others and was building that ministry through his spirit and his word in the context of his people. And friends, I saw it between services right in this room. I watched some folks here praying for each other. I saw one or two groups of folks pulled a Bible out shared some scripture, prayed over people in the context of the family. It happens here. That's how God changes us. That's how God changed me. I had a call on Friday afternoon from an 87-year-old man. His name is Wally. He lives in North Dakota now. He's retired, living near his daughter. 
health's not as great as it once was. He calls me every once in a while to pray for me and to tell me that he prays for me and that he loves me. Kind of nice to have people like that, isn't it? Outside of my own father, there's been no man that's more deeply impacted my life than Wally. You see, he's a, he was a junior high science teacher. And in my little home church, in a town 70 miles from the Canadian border in Minnesota, where we had 10 months of winter and two months of bad sledding, he was the volunteer youth leader in my little church. He's the one who taught me how to study the Bible. He's the one who taught me how to teach. He's the one who helped me craft the very first sermon I preached at age 15. He's the one who taught me how to lead and gave me opportunities to lead. He's the one that invested in my life. And he showed me that the Spirit of God is real and could take God's Word in the context of relationships of God's people and change me. And he still calls and prays for me. And do you know out of that little church youth group that I grew up in? Four of us were pastors. There were four missionaries that came out of that little group. Two mission agencies, one in Eastern Europe and one in Asia, were started by kids I went to high school with. One of my friends was a professor at Denver Seminary for years, just retired. And crazy of all crazies, the president of the EFCA came out of this little tiny church with a junior high science teacher that believed that it was the word of God and the spirit of God in the context of relationships with the people of God that God could transform us. And out of that, to multiply transformation. And I pray he does it here. That he continues no matter what campus you're on, no matter what's going on around you, because he longs to take this incredible message of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ and bring it into the lives of people so they would be changed, so God could shape them and through them change others to his glory. I want to pray God's blessing over you because I think that some of the most exciting days of Solano Community Church are yet to come. Father, may you now do something in, your, in our day that would remind us of your incredible goodness, that would point us to who you are. And here at Solano Community Church, may this congregation be transformed so you can multiply transformation through them as your spirit, your word, and your people are that incredible connecting point where you would work. In Jesus' name, amen. I love it so much. We have what we need. We think we need these things, but we actually need these things, and the good news is that we have them, the Holy Spirit, the Word, and the people of God. And that is a great way for us to be thinking as we enter into this next season, which involves moving where we worship. Um, and then after that, we don't know, uh, multiplying. Um, we don't know what God's doing, all the details of it, but he does. And I know that in this kind of a moment, we have different responses. Some of us get really excited, like, oh, we're on a new adventure. This is great. And some of us are feeling the opposite. Oh, no. You know, I don't want change. I don't like change. I, I like being in this room. Even though it's ugly, I've gotten attached to it, you know. Um, and, 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 and some of us feel like, oh, we're finally going to get in a church home, uh, actual church building. And some of us are saying, oh, man, we're going to be in a church building. 
because um, we like not being in a church building. And there's all of this difference in our responses. And I, as we come to the communion table, I want us to um, remember that God knows all of that and he holds all of that. And he wants all of us to hold our differences in community with grace towards one another and an understanding of how we respond differently to these moments. And then this is maybe even more important or equally important is whatever element of uncertainty or inconvenience comes with it, to allow that to lean us into God, to, to draw from the Holy Spirit, to say, God, I need you in this moment. I don't like what's happening or it's uncomfortable for me. Or I didn't want it to go this way. Those moments are gifts because they cause us to lean into God more fully than we might have been. You see that all through the book of Acts. And what we're living is in a very small way, but big maybe for the American church context where we, we tend to be quite comfortable. Um, a little bit of the book of Acts, a little bit of the uncertainty, but it's in, as we've seen over and over again, it's in that uncertainty where God moves and does unexpected things. He's playing chess. We're thinking checkers. He's playing chess. So let's enter into this season with that sense of expectation and faith and hope and drawing on the Holy Spirit. And, and you know, nobody's going to be taking a one-hour bus to El Cerrito. We're going to get rides figured out for you students, you know. God's going to be in this and working through it.